This is Naturopathic Doctors for Truth. We are gathering elders and wise MDs and other special guests to open discussion of important topics in naturopathic medicine and to address troubling trends during these times. We don't need to all agree on what the truth is, but we all agree that we need to be free to express our views, whatever those may be. So welcome everybody to Naturopathic Doctors for Truth. We're definitely feeling the crunch of the times, being censored, being shamed, being you know, deplatformed, canceled for bringing in alternative views during this time of COVID, uh, during the cancel culture the times that we're also seeing. Uh, naturopathic doctors are getting hit hard, but are not too different from other um, organizations, different professions, like even medical doctors are being censored, but definitely naturopathic doctors are being censored as well. And we're here to speak out and to help people, you know, to support each other as, nat as naturopathic doctors, as students in, in naturopathy, but also for the public to uh, gain the perspective that naturopaths, not all naturopaths, buy into the mainstream narrative that's being fed by mainstream media um, about COVID, the science, the, the lack of ability to help uh, the, the virus or help the stopping transmission or reducing the severity of the symptoms. Um, you know, that story that's being sold, there's lots of alternative uh, versions of this. So we're gonna, we've been talking about this and we've had uh, Dr. Kareem on before and Dr. Well, Brian is a student of naturopathic medicine amongst his other many um, interesting uh, accolades. And you could read about my guests uh, lower, our guests on Indies for Truth on, on this page where you're watching from um, on Indies for Truth. So I just wanted to introduce one other topic in Ontario, Kono, uh, that's the College of Naturopaths of Ontario, has already shown some pretty aggressive moves against naturopathic doctors for, you know, even bringing anything that you would expect a naturopathic doctor to be allowed to do to, to share it with the public and their patients about what they might do to help bolster the immune system to uh, decrease the severity of COVID, prevent its um, transmission. A lot of doctors have gotten slaps on the wrist and many doctors that added their name from Ontario um, got cease and desist letters from Kono for having their names on NDs for truth, which is not even really legally sound. We won't get into that. But Kono has recently proposed to remove the word medicine from our uh, from naturopath scope of practice. Um, and illness prevention is going to be removed, as well as clinical diagnosis will be removed from the core competencies of naturopathic doctors in Ontario. And to reduce naturopathic doctors with capital N, capital D to little n and little d, just so we don't stick our heads too high up there and uh, at a risk of it getting chopped off. So these are these are that I just that's just news. We're not really going to get into that uh, tonight unless it really seems pertinent. But I want to thank you, Brian. I want to thank you, Dr. Kareem, for being on here. Um, really uh, admire both of you in your own ways. You have similar encyclopedic knowledge and really the great ability to 
um, re recite uh, vast amounts of data, which is boggling for me. <laughs> and I thought it might make for a very interesting uh, discussion to have you on together. I'd like to start tonight with the new strain that they've, I mean, basically told us was coming for a long time, you know? Um, I, I, rem I have visions of Bill Gates snickering uh, to himself and his wife, you know, basically knowing what was coming. The, the, um, the Operation Lockstep of the Rock Rockefeller document that basically lines up step for step the play-by-play -play of how to unfold these plans. So um, let's start with you, Dr. Kareem. Maybe you could just speak to a little bit, because because our audience should know that you're, you've also been trained as a medical doctor and uh, in naturopathic medicine as well. So as far as I've come to understand, I'd like you to address this. Viruses, viral mutation, how, what kind of timeline on those mutations do you know about? How, how much actual science are, being, are we being told? Um, are we being shared? Science, the science that we learn in our, our colleges and our universities, it feels like there's not a lot of real scientific um, rigor or data being shared. So what can you say about the new strain and, and what we see happening these days? Okay, um, so there's been a bit of news recently about a newer strain, um, you know, which is really a variant of the existing um, strain. So it's been given the label VUI 2020-12-1, so variant under investigation, also been given the title lineage B1.1.7. And basically, uh, this variant was first kind of noticed, discovered in the UK, um, found to, you know, have a point mutation in the spike protein. Now, when we talk about viruses and how they tend to evolve, they're constantly evolving um, their genetic material. And basically, one of the most common types of mutations that exists, you know, in viruses and just in general um, is a point mutation where oftentimes just a slight change in the sequence means that you change the amino acids going into that protein being made. And by simply changing those amino acids, you can change the structure, you can change the binding affinity of you know, those proteins. So in this case, this particular variant uh, seems to have a mutated spike protein, which is also the area of interest in terms of the um, um, approved vaccines that already exist for COVID, which are again, um, basically get your body to produce the spike protein, make antibodies to those spike proteins. Therefore, when you encounter such spike proteins, um, you know, you basically have a better chance of fighting it off with less initial symptoms. Um, so this spike protein, again, is, you know, one of the things that's kind of unique about it is what it interacts with um, and interfaces with in our human body. And that's that ACE2 receptor, um, which again is one of the main kind of targets known in medicine. Um, both, you know, conventional medical doctors and NDs alike are gonna be, you know, well-versed in understanding that this is gonna be the target of your different drugs, your ACE inhibitors, um, as well as your, um, you know, ACE, um, you know, uh, blockers, um, you know, receptor blockers in order to help control hypertension, which is one of the predisposing um, 
morbidities um, for kind of adverse, you know, outcomes when it comes to COVID infection. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, of concern, and, and there's, this is kind of where, you know, when it comes to, okay, what's the science say on it? So it kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve in your line of questioning. So some people have asked the question of, okay, you know, is there really, you know, when it comes to say that, you know, where things are moving, when it comes to say a COVID vaccine, does that mean we are now going to need an annual COVID vaccine, not unlike we have an annual flu vaccine for the various kind of changes in strains that circulate, you know, around the globe. Um, and, and it's interesting where, again, you know, if you pay attention to the dialogue in advance, you kind of see where the dialogue is going. Um, and, you know, again, initially, you know, the, the, the concern and the hope is that, you know, you get enough people, you know, vaccinated for the current, you know, uh, you know, with the current coronavirus vaccine, that essentially, you know, we can eventually get back to this point where life can return somewhat reasonably towards normal. Um, again, with the added caveat that until things get back to some undisclosed normal, we will still need to maintain social distancing as well as right. you know, masking in addition to the vaccine. Um, can, I, can I get in here a quick second? I want to ask cool. you a question, Dr. Krim, and then I'm going to get right over to you, Brian, okay? So oh, yeah. is it possible? I mean, if we take this for granted because this is the narrative that they're telling us, but I I have serious questions about their ability to isolate these spike proteins and to even come close to being able to produce a vaccine against them in under a year. Um, if you look at all the history of the, the production of vaccines against other coronaviruses, SARS, MERS, um, they haven't succeeded. And, and they've had almost a couple of decades with, I think that was uh, SARS, right? And then MERS, they, have, they haven't produced a vaccine. So how are we to believe that they can detect that there's a mutation in the strain, say it's a new, it's this exact, you know, sequence, and then be able to do anything about it, including diagnose it and then produce uh, vaccines against it. So can you address that? And then Brian, I'd like you to jump in on the same question right after, okay? <laughs> um, sure. So when it comes to, again, you know, sequencing, you know, DNA, sequencing RNA, I mean, the technology has been around for a while and typically, you know, amongst the things that we'll use to kind of um, enhance our ability to pick out or look for certain sequences um, is, you know, PCR to kind of amplifying samples. Now, one thing we, what we don't have, and again, with this virus and even with the vaccine around this virus and what makes it kind of interesting and different compared to say other viruses and other vaccines is, um, you know, typically, you know, most conventional vaccines, including the annual influenza vaccine, basically will use what's known as either a, you know, killed or an attenuated virus. So that basically means attenuated live virus. So that basically means where we either, you know, take said, you know, virus of, you know, concern, we basically culture it through a number of different tissues until it's no longer expressing the disease symptoms, you know, in say mouse studies, but now you're, but you still have some of those, you know, protein sequences those same binding sequences that interact with the human body that your body can then make antibodies towards. So, um, you know, that's where, again, people can theoretically, you know, get an, an infection if you don't properly attenuate said virus. With, yeah. with, with the coronavirus, and again, coronavirus is 
again, a class of, you know, numerous viruses that includes, you know, colds, but again, there are variants within, you know, every kind of, you know, family of viruses from, you know, more severe to relatively, you know, more benign. And again, how everyone is going to manifest that's going to be different. In the case of the COVID vaccine, basically the two technologies that are being used, the ones that have been approved for, um, you know, by the FDA um, emergency authorization use are basically, again, mRNA vaccines. So it's basically a two-dose system where you give, you know, the initial dose, you know, um, which has basically the code that, you know, for making the RNA for the spike protein, which then gets your cells to produce said spike protein. And then your immune system basically targets different parts of said spike protein, you know, and the second one, and it's interesting when you talk about the, you know, the vaccination, you know, usually with the first dose, people aren't actually mounting the response. It's, you require that second dose. And that's usually where people will oftentimes mention those systemic symptoms of just general malaise, you know, weakness, you know, uh, foggy headedness, you know, general aches and pains, um, you know, compared to say the first dose. So given that, again, it's a different technology, it's a technology that, again, U.S. Department of Defense has been investigating for a number of years. Um, again, most um, type of research regarding, you know, biological agents, you know, goes in the jurisdiction of the U.S. Department of Defense. And even with the CDC, it's like if you ever watch like an ACIP uh, type of, um, you know, um, one of the ACIP means when it comes to approval for vaccines, you have actual military brass that's present, you know, in these because of, again, that overlap with the Department of Defense. So that research has been going on for a while. Um, as for what the long-term effects are going to be, the jury's still out, you know, because this is the first time in civilian use we're seeing the widespread use of this type and technology of a vaccine. All right. All right, thanks, Dr. Krim. Brian, you want to jump in here and just I'd love to hear what you have to say about those couple of points that were that were. So, yeah, it's interesting. Um, I will say, having worked in the federal government, um, you know, talking about a lot of the military, what a lot of people I don't think understand fully is that um, our public health system in the United States is actually militarized, um, and it has been, I think, since its inception. I think back in like the seventeen, I want to say it was like seventeen ninety eight, something like that. Um, they're uniformed, uh, they, they're naval, they're, their structure is the same as the Navy. Um, and so when you see a lot of that brass in those meetings, a lot of that brass, um, uh, we say brass for the, you know, for the officers that are there, a lot of them are U.S. Public Health Service. Um, and the U.S. Public Health Service recruits a lot of very intelligent people. Um, but having known a lot of those people as well and having worked with a lot of those people, I can tell you, there's a lot of them that have the same questions we do um, and have the same concerns. The problem is, is that they have, they sign a contract based where they have to take orders. And so just like any other, you know, more, I guess, militarized, um, you know, uh, agency or department uh, within the Department of Defense, I don't, U.S. Public Health Service, I don't think is within the Department of Defense. I forgot where it is. But anyway, my point being with that is that um, there is a lot of brass in there. Um, and there is even some military brass in there, but a lot of it's public health service. Um, okay. And structurally, that's important because many of these many of these people that are public health service people that have all you know the brass, they don't have the backgrounds to you know most of them don't have the backgrounds to really understand this at these levels. Um, and you know even the three of us having again I don't know what Kareem's education was um, you know at a um, conventional medical school. Um, but 
I can tell you that our education, and again, I, I really loved our immunology uh, professor and the, the gentleman who taught us, uh, you know, virology, um, you know, immunology and microbiology. Um, but I can tell you that our education where, where I was, was woefully insufficient to really understand these kinds of, 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 of outbreaks, if you will. And even, even my education at the Indiana University School of Medicine uh, in this, uh, in epidemiology and environmental health science was woefully, again, uh, you almost have to be, you know, post, you know, several postdocs to really be able to get into the depth of this or have like a particular special, like specialty or special interest in this. Right. Yeah. Just uh, let me ask you to address this question then right now. Yeah. In terms of a virus, a virus can mutate. So it changes in terms of its, uh, the, the uh, expression of its spike proteins at the point where it mutates. Does the previous vaccine that they were working on for the years previously, does it, does it still have relevance for the new strain? Do, well, can it be active at all? Are you, are you, uh, let's, yeah. So let's, let's unpack that a little bit differently. Let me step back and say that vaccines are always problematic. Um, they don't have a uniform effect because of our, you know, our, our bio-individuality, you know, various uh, genetic, you know, predispositions as well as nutritional status, environmental status, et cetera. Um, sure. But when you're talking about an effect that a vaccine may or may not have, right? Viruses and vaccines are always mutating. So that's the kind of the canard in all of this is that, so, and some of them are very quickly mutating and some of them are not, but that's what human, human life, and I shouldn't say human life, all biological life really has been. If you go take a drop of seawater, you know, a cubic centimeter of seawater, I think you have something like hundreds of billions of viruses in that one cubic centimeter. Viruses, just like, you know, many other parts of the microbial world are the essence of how uh, life is maintained on this planet. Um, and that's why you'll get some scientists that will say, hey, these viruses, you know, this is the exosome hypothesis, right? That these viruses really are just, um, you know, intercellular communication going on with the body. And some people have mislabeled them, you know, viruses and or they act like that. So when we attack the virus, we attack the intercellular communication, which is attacking the immune system. Yeah. And let me make a bigger, broader point with this, which is that um, it's important to understand that immunology, and again, at the highest levels, right? I know it's far beyond what I can even conceive of, right? The field, because again, I'm not an expert in every field and I doubt Dr. Kareem or Dr. You know, you are either, but my point is that the immune system is, you know, immunology is one of the least understood fields. And it's, and, and that's why so many of the, the hypotheses have been so easy to reject over the last 100, 120 years, because we really don't have a clue. What's, I don't wanna say we don't have a clue, but we really have a, have like the worst understanding of that system, maybe only next to the systems that we really haven't discovered or organized or started thinking of them as systems yet. So, so I just want to take that as Yeah, even if it's most basic fundamentals, the idea of like create, preparing a vaccine against the virus is problematic, even without talking about the mutation of said virus or the, the ever-changing face of that virus, it's, it's problematic just to target a virus with a vaccine. Well, especially so once you understand that, again, exosomes and intercellular communication mm -hmm. can be impacted by that. So what happens now is you have a hijacking of our biological system, right? Or 
Um, yeah. You know, you can choose another word instead of hijacking, but you have a, an alteration of the biologic system whereby the biologic system immunologically can't respond in the same way. And sometimes the body will then turn around and respond by having a hyper reaction. Or sometimes it'll, it'll, you know, turn off and it'll subdue that reaction. And so just like when we're, you know, in medicine, you know, and again, in our, in our business, when my, when my physicians that work for me, we try not to ever, you know, micro, you know, micromanage or micro manipulate biochemistry because that biochemistry is so unique. And so once you start going in with vaccines or even gene editing kind of things, which was based what these genes are kind of functioning as you're getting into such a manipulation of things that are so much bigger than our capacity to understand. And that yeah. is always a very, very dangerous proposition. It doesn't mean it's going to be super dangerous in every instance, but it's just, it's, it's a, it's a slippery slope to very bad things to happen. And again, it may only be for one out of every 10,000 people, but you multiply that amongst all the people in the world. And that's a serious issue. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Thanks, Brian. And, and Dr. Kareem, I mean, you're talking about the PCR test. I, almost as if we're taking it for granted that the PCR test is capable of diagnosing viral load or an infection when the maker, it was, uh, what's his name? Carrie, Carrie Mollis. Carrie Mollis, Carrie Mollis who recently yeah. died. He recently he died just before this whole thing was, was launched. Coincidence, maybe. Um, maybe not because they knew he was a bit of a, like if you watch his videos, he's a bit of a character, like a little bit on out, outside of the box of what you might expect a, a very brilliant scientist to, to behave like. And he, I don't think he was going to, uh, you know, be quiet about the fact that the PCR test shouldn't be used as a diagnostic tool. Uh, it, it can, I mean, he got the Nobel prize for, his ability for that that function to to be able to augment um, a genetic material, but to diagnose that's a that's a whole other ball game. And he was quite vocal about it not being usable for that. Uh, Dr. Kareem, could you speak to that right now? Well, what part of the issue is that again you know standardization of methodology, and this is you know where things can can get a little bit confusing because when we look at, you know, the initial kind of looking at, you know, diagnosis for cases and even how certain states will count their, their case loads, you have a combination of different methodologies for reporting. So you may have those that are looking at, you know, IgG antibodies, which simply can mean anything from you've had the infection and you've cleared it and you're immune to you've encountered the infection, nothing really happened, but your body just kind of made these recognizing antibodies um, you know, to like, you're still chronically dealing with said infection versus the IgM, which is looking at, you know, mo is probably one of the best ones because that's typically only going to be available, uh, is only going to be present while the virus is acutely infecting you. And then again, you have the actual, uh, you know, PCR cycling. Um, and again, there's, there's different reports that talk about how, you know, the when you, you know, the more cycles that you run, you know, on a sample, it's like, you know, we, again, we, you know, just as, you know, Brian was mentioning about the, the prevalence of viruses and even just some research I was looking at talking about even our kind of approach of like a person has one infection in the body caused by one bug causing one disease when oftentimes it's like, 
you had this virus that allowed this endogenous bacteria that allowed this mycoplasma to kind of work together in this, you know, sort of dark synergy uh, yeah. to kind of negatively affect you. Um, likewise, you know, through, you know, throughout our bodies, we have this, you know, massive virome, you know, of, you know, endogenous viruses, retroviruses, um, and the same thing with our bacteria. And oftentimes, mm -hmm. these various viruses and bacteria themselves are actually essential and critical to life, yet we can have certain strains of those very same ones critical to life that can become deadly to life and pathogenic. And this is where understanding, okay, what are the unique, you know, effects, what are the unique kind of, or, or some of the, the common issues that we see as to kind of predispose towards the expression of pathogenic strains of anything. So when you're picking up said, you know, genetic material and potentially amplifying it, again, it, it gets very difficult because we have people who are, you know, even our, our diagnostic criteria, which traditionally is based on, okay, you have to first present with, you know, sufficient symptoms of a clinical disease. And then using, you know, the presentation, you know, physical exam, you know, history, as well as laboratory data, we use that to kind of confirm and make, you know, an official di clinical diagnosis. Um, in this case, we have a unique situation where we had an encouragement of asymptomatic people or for returning to work without having had any sort of study saying that having, you know, XYZ being positive or being negative is actually going to impact, you know, morbidity, mortality, and infection rates, you know, in, in the workspace. Um, so it, it's, again, it's because of the fact that you have people who are, you know, oftentimes asymptomatic going and getting tested, you know, you have false positives as well as people who are symptomatic. And, you know, when you do an, you know, immunoglobulin test, they may show that they have positive activity for, you know, the COVID. Whereas when you're looking at the, you know, PCR tests, they may be negative. So we don't have in nearly enough data to be able to really kind of ascertain this. But the problem is, like I said, when you have a constantly swinging pendulum from both the rate at which you're doing the test to which test you're focusing on, you know, to, you know, just constantly shifting policy, it becomes very difficult to kind of get any sort of clear, meaningful data, you know, from that landscape. Awesome. Yeah, um, I agree. Me, Brian, go ahead. Yeah, if I can follow up on several of those, I'll, I'll make some broad points. And if we want to go deeper into them, um, uh, we can we can go deeper. That way we can keep it brief and I don't have to pontificate into detail as much. But number one, <clears throat> it's really important to understand that PCR, uh, and, and Kerry Mullis has been saying this for at least 30, 30 years, and if not 40 years when he created it, it's a qualitative test. It's not a quantitative test. Um, and it was never really meant to be a quantitative test to assess load or infection or anything like that. It was meant to identify uh, organisms and then it, or, you know, microorganisms, right? And or viruses, right? But the, the point being is that it was then, its use was, was broadened for other other reasons. And this is where we get into this really blurry line between policy and science. And policy and science, so much of what's happening in our world is policy right now. And it's being the diktats, right? The dictates are being directed to our entire society through policy. So when you go to a place and it says that, you know, the, the businesses will say that the government mandates the mask wearing. But if you read the mandates, the mandates right, encourage the businesses to create a requirement that everybody wear ma wears masks. So the government is saying, hey, the businesses, it's up to you to decide. And then the, and then the businesses, and then, every, and then they use the word requirement all throughout these mandates. 
And so then the businesses think, oh my God, we're required to do it because they hear it in the they hear it on social media, they hear it from their politicians, they hear it from the scientific people, the medical people. And so they get into this and then they think that the government is telling them that's what they have to do. But if you read the, the actual delegation of authority, which is how all this stuff works, the government is saying, you, the business get to decide. And the business is saying, no, we have to comply with yeah. their request to for us to voluntarily do it, which is why businesses that don't do it oftentimes don't have problems, some of them do. But so my point is policy, people don't understand the difference between policy and science. But what happens is when you apply this policy, now people believe that this is what science is. And that's yeah. where things get really, really confused. So, um, so qualitative, not quantitative. Um, and then I wanted to mention also that, you know, it depends on what kind of things like this, people that are naturopaths, especially, and, and you know, many more functional medicine docs uh, and chiropractors and probably even some osteopaths will understand the concept that when you, you know, go and hit, um, you know, bacterium or, you know, numerous bacteria uh, or even a biofilm with powerful antibiotics that you create resistance. Well, that same resistance, uh, it, it happens in different ways, but that same resistance is happening in, in, you know, in virology as well. And we don't really fully understand, or at least I, let me say I don't. And to the best of my understanding over the last 10, 12 years, they don't really fully understand how, the, how and why those things do mutate. Um, which is why when one of these outbreaks happens, we never know if it's going to become the most sinister virus ever, which is usually not the case because they don't usually become that way. They usually go the opposite direction. They usually, if they start really powerful, you know, and very virulent um, and, and highly transmissible with a high R naught, they usually come down, right? As people become, as people learn how to deal with it, as their body learns to communicate with it, as they breathe on other people and we have, you know, that herd immunity. So, but if we start pushing that, right, with, with toxic chemicals to disinfect our houses and other things, right, with stress, with, you know, from financial or social stress or isolation, right, all these factors, right, all these things can help mutate a virus, right, people living in, in you know, in, in toxic homes, right, all that, and, and having now spend the majority of their time there because they're afraid to go out, so now their whole you know, immune system is highly suppressed. So my point is there's all these things driving viral mutations. And so to try to follow how the viruses actually mutate is extremely difficult. Um, I, I bet the technology exists at NIH and NIEHS in Carolina, um, here in the United States and probably at CDC and, and you know, Emory University as well, but um, viruses are always mutating. And so we want to try to not force them into becoming more aggressive, just like we, you know, we don't want, you know, bacterial resistance. We really don't want viral um, resistance either. So the last point is that, um, and I wanted just to, so that the audience knows this, but the, a lot of people talk about asymptomatic, you know, transmission and the WHO, you know, the World Health Organization was very clear that, that the overwhelming majority of the spread, right, of this virus, and again, spread for me is very difficult because we've talked in the past about the case definitions from a clinical standpoint. And then we've talked about the case definitions from an epidemiological link standpoint as well, well as from a laboratory diagnosis. And all three are highly problematic when we actually read through that text. But the WHO is very clear that most of this stuff is not being driven through asymptomatic transfer, right? It's usually being driven by people who become very infectious and then are, you know, expose a bunch of other people like that. So the other, the other last important point was 
we collect so much data as scientists, even me and my business, I, I have, I'm very science oriented in my, in my business, very data driven when I work with clients um, because I really want to know what's there. Uh, and I want to make sound decisions based on that. But when I do that, right, I always collect way more data than I could ever really fully analyze. And when I worked at this federal government level and at the state government level, um, and even at the county government level, we were always collecting, we always had way more data than we could ever hire enough people to analyze. And <clears throat> I, I know that it's some of the other projects that are in federal government and that are in you know, the, you know, the security realm and other maybe biotech, like some of these big companies, right? They have the ability to analyze that stuff much more. But I can tell you that from a day-to-day -day people, um, you know, in job standpoint that that, and this is probably where that, that we're on that cusp of AI stuff going on, but um, it's very difficult to be able to analyze all of that properly and fully. And I don't I would never, let me be clear, I would never trust AI to even do that, right? Because of the limitations of algorithms and, and whatnot and the inability to think uh, and to be fully human in that. But um, I just wanted to bring those points out um, while we were talking about the PCR. I think the, thought those were relevant points. Yeah, thank you. you. You also remind me of the point that, you know, in, in naturopathic medicine is this idea of holism. And the idea is not just that, you know, you have this infectious agent, you have a, you have a, a person or an animal or something, and then it gets infected. There are multiple factors some of the most important factors are the, the state of well-being of that person. And that, that well-being doesn't just extend into the physical state of reality, but also their mental and emotional state. So if, you, if you're pumping a culture full of fear and you know, removing the idea that there's any alternative, so censoring any alternatives, and that could even be some um, pretty harmless medicines that conventional medicine do medical doctors use, like ivermectin and uh, hydroxychloroquine that that provide other solutions you're removing all of that you're pumping up the fear so then yeah we are definitely predisposing and and, and also augmenting in people's minds the fear of the virus so this it's almost like the, the power that we have in our minds to create and and this has been shown across science and culture you, you name it you know sure. um if we are sitting here fearing and you know the masks and being afraid of each other we're just augmenting the fear and really empowering that virus with the power to infect us because we're giving that power to it uh dr cream you wanted to add something to that yeah i just kind of wanted to follow up on a couple of you know your points and brian's points um just regarding the you know some data on the SARS-CoV uh, to uh, virus alone, so there's already like 4,000 mutations that have been detected in that spike glycoprotein alone, according to the you know COVID-19 Genomics uh, UK consortium. Um, in addition, you know basically uh, in the UK, uh, NerveTag, which is uh, basically the group there that kind of monitors you know you know virulence and transmissibility of these diseases, basically have no evidence that this increased transmissibility means that there is an increased mortality. And as Brian had alluded to before, generally speaking in nature, the most severe in terms of mortality of diseases tend to be more self-limiting. That basically, if, if the goal from the perspective of you know, promulgating genetic material is the key, you want to have good infectivity, but you don't want to kill your host in the process. You know, you want to be able, you know, to, to be yeah. able to spread as much as, as possible. And, and this is where, again, when it comes to understanding, you know, 
the, the critical epigenetic things. So without even getting into drugs, okay, vitamin D alone, okay, looking at the data that shows without any shadow of contestable doubt that, you know, those in the lowest, you know, um, you know, quartile of vitamin D um, levels, you know, were, you know, in the most severe group of adverse outcomes and mortality when it came to COVID. This applies to numerous other diseases. Vitamin D testing has been around for decades. It is a cheap over-the-counter, freely available. If you don't have access to it, getting some sunlight if you're in a latitude that allows it or access to cod liver oil if you're trying to get it from a natural endogenous sources. The point being, it's, it's so widely available that there's no monopolization on this issue um, and, and there's no kind of real risk of harm you know, that may potentially come from, you know, say um, a, a prescription medication that's not properly, um, you know, dosed or prescribed. So right. you know, we have to kind of bring it back to these things. And, and you mentioned something also about the, the fear thing and, and something of the mask. And I listed an interesting talk that, you know, the function of masks, one that has been a socially useful one, is traditionally people who are ill, the people who have the highest viral or bacterial loads, who are coughing, you know, who are sneezing, you know, would wear a mask, you see somebody wearing a mask, you're like, okay, here's someone who's probably sick, let me give them space. When everyone's wearing it, you have sick and ill mixing under this false assumption that, you know, all right, you know, masks are here, so illness is not possible, yet we see that illness is still possible, we still have waves, we still have spikes, where overall, again, you know, because of the fact that, you know, at businesses, you go to most stores, People who don't wear the mask are usually the exception oftentimes because they may have just plain forgotten rather than they just are trying to be belligerent or are trying to disagree with that. And, and, and it's interesting when it comes to tracking the data for influenza in which, you know, CDC has stopped surveillance and, you know, it brings us questions like, whoa, this is great. How, what is the answer? What is the, the, the cause, the explanation for this decrease in influenza? Well, it's like, oh, because people are wearing their masks. Okay. Why is it that you know, we still haven't been able to get rid of COVID. It's like, oh, because people aren't wearing their masks. So you, you will hear people say what they need to say when it fits the narrative. Yeah. Um, well, and, and let, let me let me jump in and really make an important point on that. I think that's a really critical and key point, which is that um, influenza has basically gone away. And even in the in the pharma in the pharmaceutical realms, it's been reported. I don't know if these are accurate, but um, it's been reported that. Um, prescriptions for things like Tamiflu and things like that are like non-existent. And this gets to the very heart of what I presented in these last two talks, which is the definition of a case. In epidemiology, when we're trying to define what a case is, it's really, really important to separate or di distinguish the difference between a case and a control. And I can tell you with the clinical definitions that I read, right, that those clinical definitions are the same clinical definitions by and large as influenza or the common cold. So there's no distinguishing it clinically. Um, you could say, oh, people have a lost sense of smell and taste, but that, that actually happens in many other, you know, infectious processes as well. Um, and then you get to the, again, the diagnostic, whether it's PCR or antibodies or, you know, any of the ways that they're trying to diagnose, which are highly flawed, especially when you have large numbers of people that don't have it who go to get it, the number of false positives, I mean, logarithmically go up. So then you get to the epidemiologic links, which is like, oh, my phone said I was close to this person for a certain number of minutes. It must have, you know, and then they start deducing that that must have come from that. And then we make policy 
decisions, both in the science world and then even in the real world, the governmental world or the enforcement level, you know, all those things. And those are all really problematic when just defining a case is extremely, I would argue, right, extremely difficult. And there's another point um, really quickly that I want to throw in, which is that when I started my epidemiology program, I already had 10 years of naturopathic background before that. Um, again, wasn't even necessarily planning. Well, I was thinking about going to naturopathic school, but people had kind of tried to say, oh, don't, you know, they've kind of lost it in the schools. And this is, you know, 12, 13 years ago. But when I started that program, it was interesting. They said, we're going to teach you about disease from the point of view of the microbe. And of course, I had all these Claude Bernard, you know, Louis Pasteur debates in my head, as well as going back, you know, the history and uh, philosophy of medicine and science going back, you know, 2,500 years to Pythagoras and Hippocrates and all of that. And the reason I thought that that was really interesting and folly is because when you think about it from the turn of the microorganism, well, that's interesting. That's what the chemical companies do. That's what the pharmaceutical companies do. That's what most of what I call industrial medicine does, right? Um, you know, people call it conventional or traditional. I don't find it conventional or traditional at all, right? Um, I see it as a very industrial, you know, mo- like a kind of postmodern, you know, kind of uh, medicine. Um, and it's key- it keeps evolving. That's why I said the next chapter, I think, in that medicine is going to be this fusion of naturopathic functional um, I think that's where they're kind of shifting and then getting into the, you know, the genetic, you know, the application of genetic, you know, stuff that they're doing. But coming back to this, though, I want to be clear. Too often, the point of view is from the microbe and fearing that microbe when right. most nature paths have, have decades of experience and education for people who have, you know, up to a century of experience, right, in, in the profession and, and even from building on principles from before that. But that's not how, like throughout history, you know, yeah, you have some herbs that would, you know, do things, but a lot of those herbs were adaptogenic, you know, they had other properties. And so, and I feel like I'm getting a little disjointed, but let me step back and say, even at my school, right, where I went to school here in Arizona, um, when I did research, I was so excited to do research and I would come in and we were doing, we were publishing on like how to kill this microbe, how to kill this virus. And I was like, that's the, like, this is a naturopathic school. You already have the, the wrong philosophy. And if you ask the wrong question, right, you're going to start yielding the wrong answers or you're going to start funding the wrong research. And then that research builds up and then everyone says, oh, but the research says, well, yeah, well, I could go research, you know, toe fungus, you know, on elephants, but, and we can build a huge library of that research, but how relevant is it to what's really going on in the, in our, in our world, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. And you know, what I'm doing here and what we're doing, what I think we're doing is that even speaking there, the, that game, which as naturopathic doctors, we don't really buy into the whole, exactly what you're saying, Brian, is very relevant. You know, we're not, we're not micro based. We're whole person based. We're terrain based. We're vital force based. These are all, you know, nutrition based systems based. This is very different than just saying, you know, the problem is the microbe. And then you got to, you know, kill the microbe to beat the infection or whatever. Um, but even, even if we play into their game, their game is still is completely kind of nonsensical and illogical and not very scientific. Mm-hmm. What's being presented to the public through the policies and what we're seeing. What, I've never seen such a lack of scientific rigor and, and, and critical thinking 
amongst the medically sanctioned um, theories and proposals that, that are being publicly, that made public. Now there are medical doctors that are bravely stepping forward, but they're not being accepted or heard in mainstream media. You know, the frontline doctors and other great doctors that are, are courageous enough to come and step forward. So I, 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 I want to have a balanced approach here where we're speaking, we're kind of, you know, a little, little bit picking apart the illogical nature of what we're seeing in the public policy, in the mainstream narrative around COVID, and also then providing the other per perspective, you know, the alternative way of seeing it, which are many. There are many different ways of looking at it that are a lot more helpful than the mainstream one. So, well, and, yeah. and, and let me quibble uh, lovingly and respectfully with this idea of mainstream. I think it, I think it plays a, I, I, I don't want it's a little bit of a semantic point, but um, this aspect of mainstream versus alternative, I think is a false dichotomy. Um, and so much of the alternative has been thoroughly co-opted in my mind over decades. So that now people talk about mainstream media and alternative media, but I would argue that Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and all the social media are the mainstream media. The only ones for whom it's not really mainstream media at this point are the people who are pretty close to retirement age or retired. And I don't mean to make an ageist, you know, gen overgeneralization like that. But my point is, is that most people are now accessing their information on the internet. And most of them are getting it, you know, from friends that send them this. I get so many friends that send me so much junk on this and, and, and even naturopathic physicians, right? And they're lovely yeah. people. Um, but the point being is that, you know, this, this aspect of the mainstream versus the alternative, I see the alternative is always, when I see the alternative spinning always, and I say spinning off of the, the mainstream um, talking points for the day, I already know that either wittingly or unwittingly, they've been co-opted. They've already given over their force to the mainstream, you know, the, if you will, the, the, um, the social engineers talking points for the day. And so automatically, I want to divorce myself from most of that because I want to go into the things that really help people, right? The things that we already know, right? Sure, sure. So I, your point is taken. I, I hear what you're saying. And I know you've, you've always been a strong advocate for the fact that uh, there's a lot of controlled opposition out there and what even in the alternative world. So let me, let me specify. Well, I'll get you in a sec, Dr. Kareem. I want to specify when I speak to mainstream media, I'm referring specifically to what's on the, the tube, the TV, uh, CNN, MSNBC, CBC, CTV that in Canada and stuff like that. So that's what I'm referring to. Now, I, your point is, is taken though, I, I, I hear you. So and let, me, Kareem, let, me, let me clarify really quickly. I would say that mainstream is establishment, establishment approved messages. Yeah, so even right. when you get on YouTube, YouTube is now censoring, you know, anything that's not, not anything, but many things that are not establishment. So by definition, yeah. that becomes mainstream for me, right? Sure, sure. The Fair idea enough. of mainstream, the, the culture of that word mainstream and what it means, what it denotes. Sure, sure. Dr. Kareem, you, you had something to say, yeah. yeah just a kind of, uh, uh, first, a little kind of nod to, you know, this issue of, you know, co-option of, say, you know, quote-unquote alternative medicine or naturopathic medicine. Um, I'll say that one of the things that makes naturopathic medicine unique is 
even though that definitely I would say that the, the foundation truly is and has to be based in vitalism, that's always where you start when it comes with anything. Um, I think one of the things that makes naturopathic medicine unique and is what's given it its appeal and one of the reasons why I pursued it is that it, it finds that it, you know, integrates in the, you know, in a method, you know, in a methodical way, the use of completely different, even at times what might seem competing modalities, realizing that there is a time and place for everything. And that's, you know, the application of, you know, real evidence-based medicine where you're asking, okay, a question, okay, like here's a clinical situation. It's like, we definitely have to look at all of these things, but, you know, when it comes to using a, a various herbs and one of the things that makes herbs great is, you know, it's going to cover all these different kinds of aspects from both quote unquote symptom management, as well as treating the underlying cause when we're thinking it from this kind of, you know, out, you know, allopathic green allopathic mindset, but, you know, you can use naturopathic medicine in a way where it's like, there's a time and place where in that inpatient situation, you're using, you know, your allopathic, you know, goggles, but then you bring out your TCM goggles, you bring out your homeopathy goggles. So it's, it's not, I think, for everyone to integrate all the tools, I think everyone kind of figures out like, I'm best with this and this, you know, um, I yeah. think me just having come from that background of conventional medicine, you know, for me, it's like, it's given me a framework and that pharmacological kind of you know, mechanistic mindset definitely plays a role. But even when one talks about using physiology and physiological approaches to, to medicine and treatment, you know, um, all of that definitely is still, you know, integrating from a mechanistic perspective. But this is where, again, applying the science versus what becomes the policy, even when we, you know, talking about the, the policy regarding, okay, it used to be your risk when it came to contract tracing was spending a significant amount of time in the close vicinity of someone who was infected, but that definition changed to, it could be short interactions based on an N of one occurrence regarding a single prison card who had been exposed to COVID positive patients in a 24 hour window, but during short periods and then himself became positive. And so this is where, again, you know, the selective of kind of like we need, you know, data that meets X, Y, Z, you know, clinical criteria before we apply it to kind of like, well, one person's good enough for us to make an entire policy switch. You, know, you, you have to always be questioning, is there a consistent application of methodology? Okay. And, is, and, and I would add to that, not just is there a consistent application of methodology, is it sound? Is it doing what we really want it to do? Because I've been involved in investigations of, of epidemiologic outbreaks numerous times where we've made a case definition and they stick with it and it's not helping us. We're, we have so many controls in that case definition or we have so many cases that are in the controls that it becomes meaningless. And so, and if you have on a policy basis, someone that says, no, we're sticking with this. And again, I want to be clear on this. This is such an important point, right? And I know, I know we probably have you and I, Dr. Moshe, have spent too much time talking about this maybe in the previous two shows, but the politics and social engineering, all of these things that they want to give us for solutions, these are always the same things that they were peddling for the last 20 to 50 years, right? They just repackage them and rebrand them. And then, and, and they don't just do that on the fly. They set that stuff up so that it's ready to go so they can, you know, dust it off like Dave Chappelle did for his show. And now let's, here it is. This is the COVID solution, right? It was the, was the bird flu solution 15 years ago that was coming to kill us all. And then it was the H1N1 solution. And now it's COVID. 
right now it's and and whatever else they're going to morph it into right and so that's the problem is that there is a a a socio-political and a political economic and a social engineering aspect i believe to all of this but again that comes from someone who's known about that realm and that world for 25 years most people don't even know that that world exists because it for them they associate it in a really anti-intellectual way but they associate with conspiracy theory right well, there's a lot of garbage that's conspiracy theory out there, but there's, a, I mean, for me who has a history background and a, and a background in geopolitics, right? If people even knew most of the stuff that was real and well-documented, they, they would understand that conspiracy is, a, is a, an everyday part of everyday life. And it happens in the naturopathic profession. It happens in the allopathic profession. It happens in government. It happens in churches, any institution of power acts in a way that almost becomes sociopathic and justifies that entire profession. And a lot of times that funnels up through technocracy and through social engineering to be more uniform from the top. And that's just the way hierarchical societies structure themselves. Um, We just take advantage of it and then apply it in a different way. And I say we loosely, the people who run our, you know, our countries being Canada and the U S so. Sure. Yeah. But I just want to think that's really important underlying a foundation in all of this so that it's important to understand that instead of getting too focused in just the politics of it, I'm going to make sure my hands up here, just the politics up here or just the, the, you know, the virological mechanisms or the naturopathic uh, clinical approach or the diagnostics epidemiologically, blah, blah, blah. It's an integration of all those subjects. And more that I don't even really know about because I'm not educated in those, you know, other aspects. Yeah. There's all different like multi-headed beasts, you know, like different heads that pull people into greater control, greater governmental totalitarian control, moving us towards, well, Brian, we were earlier discussing the different terms for the new world order, uh, you know, the takeover, the certainly the communism on steroids, um, Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, the Great Reset, and the Great uh, Awakening. The the, the Great, Great Awakening. awakening. <clears throat> sure, yeah, for these folks. Yeah. Now, one thing that one thing to me is that convergence. Yeah. Convergence. Yeah. Well, oh, by the way, I want to transhumanism, to, right? Yeah. Transhumanism, exactly. The the merging artificial intelligence merging with humanity and basically converting the relationship between hu- human to human to human, to AI, so that people are just really becoming transhumanistic. And some of this is gonna happen also with the, the, these mRNA vaccines. These are, this is just the beginning. They're gonna keep genetically modifying people as long as they keep allowing themselves to take this stuff. But one, one point I wanna well, make now, gentlemen, yeah. One point I wanna make now, gentlemen, is, is that this is becoming more and more obvious, less and less, you know, covered. They're, they're, uh, Instagram just announced its policies that they're going to be, they, they admitted that they're going to be monitoring every single click a person does, how long they spend on each website. They're going to be t- gathering data, uh, facial recognition. So these are the things that Edward Snowden went into hiding for I don't know how long he's whatever he went in for 10 years or so. A plus, yeah. Yeah, A plus, you know, f- revealing that just a decade ago, less than a decade ago, 
telling us these are the things that they're doing. But now Instagram is literally telling us that they're doing that. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to just take that at face value, accept it and move on. So it's becoming more and more obvious, which I think is in the right direction towards cure. If you, if you consider this a problem of humanity, you know, fungus and disease have a similar, and, and even evil, if I might use that term, that that's a very interesting term that has a whole bunch of nuances. Uh, I don't just mean a devil with a pitchfork, uh, but, you know, operating outside of love, outside of truth, outside of healing principles. So fungus and evil have this, this um, commonality that they cannot thrive in sunlight. They can't thrive in the light. When, it, when what they do is revealed, they must eventually shrivel up and die out. So they, they do operate much better and function much better underneath the surface of things. So the fact that this is becoming more and more obvious to me is actually a sign that we're moving in the direction of resolving this for humanity. I don't know how long it will take, but it is in the right direction. So do, do you want to address that? You want to speak to that, uh, Dr. Karim, please? And then uh, Brian after, if, if you don't mind. In, in specific regards to, I guess, the direction of, you know, where things are going or, you know. Well, just the fact that it's becoming so obvious. Like anybody that's looking today can see the face of it all over the place. This totalitarian endeavors through, you know, we got many different arms of it, the climate change, the COVID, COVID economy, the, you know what I'm saying? The, the, there's a, a whole bunch of social engineering. So it's just become so apparent these days. I, I think it's, um, I think that fundamentally, ultimately, I mean, you know, and this is where, you know, one will have to get into kind of you know, theories on the kind of philosophy of history and the direction, you know, of history. But, you know, fundamentally, you know, I do also believe that, you know, that despite these cycles that, you know, humanity has always gone through in which you had, you know, those that became excessive and, you know, corrupt and totalitarian, you know, got balanced by these periods of truth. And that, you know, we would eventually kind of reach this sort of fundamental kind of pinnacle as humanity in which we would kind of undergo definitely a a darkest hour of sorts but there will be a fundamental triumph of truth over falsehood that you know that you know just like you know the um yang within the yin that you know even it, out of that darkness there will eventually come light and that's going to be the you know the final sort of kind of cusp on history as for like trying to predict how it's going to come about i think we're, we're in a different very unique age in which kind of the the division, the distraction of people's own energies and identities is spread so uniquely kind of thin in a way that, you know, even having like attended personally one of the, um, you know, BLM protests in Madison for me to kind of see like what's going on. There's a discohesiveness, if you would. I mean, um, you know, the, the cancer phenomenon, when we talk about that from a cellular level, is very interesting also philosophically. It's basically every cell for themselves trying to kind of gain their own nutrients. They're not, you know, basically working together as they ought to. And I think humanity is kind of in, its, in a similar kind of situation right now where I think that, yeah, I mean, at what point people's kind of tolerance kind of 
you know, breaks, I think is an important question, but it's also like that analogy of turning up, you know, the boiler on the frog situation that we have been very much conditioned for the last few decades to bring us to where we are, you know, right now. And so I think that even when you have people's consternation, and again, it's, it's very possible depending on, you know, what the, you know, who the stated president is going to become January 20th, that that could be enough of a trigger that could set off a chain reaction of things. It could be some other geopolitical, you know, issue going on. It could be kind of more dire economic situations, you know, in the United States and globally, or it could be some kind of eco disaster. It's, it's hard to say or predict, but I think that traditionally speaking, the elite, you know, when they make their plans, it's like they they would like to implement them yesterday if they could, but sometimes you have to wait for the right opportunity, you know, and as, you know, Rahm Emanuel once said, never let a good crisis go to waste. And so what's going to be the the crisis that kind of brings it about? I think it's uh, it's up in the air right now, but I think, you know, you can feel the, the pre-shocks of kind of essentially a massive earthquake tsunami underway, um, you know, kind of globally in many regards. And I think also probably literally too, but, you know, that's another, you know, topic of discussion. Sure. Sure. Thanks. And um, I, I, I see, yeah, him, I, I, I like, you see, I don't want to all, all be all doom and gloom because right from the start of this, you know, you're seeing this crazy manifestation of, of potentially being steps away from losing all of our freedoms. You know, Canada, I can see here in Canada, just we're, we're a hop, skip and a jump away from Australia, totalitarian control, you know, dragging people out of their homes that are the people who are dissenting. Um, they, they have the, the, the camp set up in, in Nova Scotia and different parts of the country. We're really close to a, a dark age uh, settling in on, on us. I think that the, the election, uh, you know, we could talk about that in a bit. I, I won't even introduce that right now. But I, I, I feel in my heart and in my soul that this was foreordained, different cosmologies, different religions have referred to as the end times, we're in the end of days. And, you know, Karim, you might have a little bit of background there spiritually. I know Brian and I share Judaism. And certainly Judaism has the, the, this premise, so does Christianity, Hopi Indians have it, and uh, you know, in astrology, there's this, this, these concepts. So I really think that what we're seeing is, is unprecedented. Today, in fact, there's a really powerful conjunction between the planets. It's visible right in the, the Western, in the, in the evening, the Western sky, Southwestern sky between Saturn and Jupiter, something that only happens once every 800 years. That's very significant. And it's happening right at the, at the, um, the winter solstice. You know, as we move into Christmas, so that that might that's nice. That might be a little less significant, but we're we're there's always these nods from the universe to say, hey, you know, we're we're not manifesting in full aspect, but we're always here. The the divine is always lives within us, and these things are going to bring 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 big changes in what humanity actually does need. 
So I'm glad to bring a balance of the, a little bit of the doom and gloom. We're looking at what it could be, but then also the, the, the higher aspect <clears throat> of things. Brian, you want to jump I'm gonna, in? I'm going to lovingly play devil's advocate with that because I actually do have hope, um, but not because of the same reasons uh, you do. And uh, again, part of my background in Judaic studies in Israel um, and looking at the way people fight wars. Um, and you and I had a conversation earlier today about the Holocaust, for example, and how um, systematically um, in partnership between the Israeli government and high level Nazi you know, government officials, right, there was cooperation to get rid of the religious spiritual Jews because they were considered backwards and then keep the young strapping people that could come down to uh, the mandate of Palestine and build a nation. Um, a nation that was- way, I have a, I'm, I'm, I'm open to it. I'm open to all possibilities, but that's a big, that's a big red pill to swallow for a Jewish person. Also, well, I, mean, no, no, but, but, but I just, I just want to make, really quickly, just I want to make the point though, is that for those people who died in the Holocaust, no matter how it happened or, or, you know, the, the ways in which we've documented those things historically, right? Is yeah. that for many of those people, emotionally, spiritually, it was as if God left them. And in throughout countries, throughout history, right? When, when people are not able to make the right decisions or defend themselves, or they don't have their disenfranchised, they don't have enough money, whatever the, the system is that where the system pushes them out and dehumanizes them, that's where we get into trouble. And I see those things happening in our society, which makes me feel like, or it makes me observe, like we're heading down into the abyss. Now we may have to be like a trampoline where we hit the abyss and then bounce back out, right? A V-shaped abyss recovery, if you will. Um, but my point is, is that I'm less hopeful in that regard, but I'm very hopeful in the fact that if, if people will stop giving their power over to these people, because let me just use the example of masks, for example. Um, we know that even in this, there's tons of scientific, scientific literature on how the masks are harming lots of people. Again, they don't, they don't harm everybody to the, to the, uh, to the impact of the level that someone's going to probably die that day. But I guarantee you, there are very serious health issues with them. But my point being with that is that having, because when I go into a grocery store, I ask questions like, oh, have you guys had an outbreak here? You know, um, and they're like, no. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you taught, you're so close to people across the the thing with no sneeze guard and you're touching all their, all their food and all their belongings. And yet there's no outbreak. And by the way, I must've asked 40 different people now, maybe even 50 in various businesses. And there haven't been outbreaks in there. And this thing were so virulent and so transmissible and so serious, right. And, and mortal, right. Which we know it's not, but if it were, you'd be seeing massive outbreaks. Right. And that gets to the point of, of how we have to test to even find it because most of these people are so asymptomatic and that to be clear, not everybody is. But so where I'm going with this is that when people give over their power, right? When they wear that mask to go inside, I'm just using that as an example. There's, I'm not one of the big mask activists, right? Or maybe we call them maskivists, right? But whatever, yeah. um, I'm not one of those, but I, I, I respect those people because I know there's people that shouldn't be wearing them at all. And then they get hounded and then it, you know, but I look at all the other people, they put it on so that they, including my partner, they put, she puts hers on just so she doesn't have to get looks, just so she doesn't have people sneer at her, even though she knows that it actually is harming her. She doesn't breathe as well with it. And I'm like, you should choose your health. But what happens is people choose <clears throat> all these other things 
you know, over themselves and they choose to empower others or go along. And that's exactly how we had problems throughout all of human history, not just my history, but that's, that's why I bring it back to that Holocaust. Yeah. It's when you let good people do nothing is when bad things happen. And right absolutely. now I see a lot of good people doing nothing. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this is what you saw in Maoist China and in Stalinist Russia is that those who, um, you know, walk the talk of what's expected by the, the power regime, the, the control, and those who don't. And that what's, what's scary is the, the, the people policing people. When the people start to get weaponized against the, the, the nonconformists, that's kind of what you referred to, Brian. That, that, and that is scary. Now, I think that we might enter into a dark age. Um, if I look at, I'm going to use a metaphor, which I've used before in terms of illness, is that you have a, you have a person subconsciously, they're, they're, they could be really successfully suppressing some aspect of their true nature. And they're in a great level of tension about it, but it's beneath the, the conscious mind and they're not aware of it. Then at a certain point, and that's decided by some factors that we don't understand, call it the divine, call it God, call it karma, timing, don't know. But that, that will start to manifest as a physical disease. So the, the disharmony that exists in the subconscious mind that, and the disharmony is determined by a person embracing ideas or feelings or emotions or trauma that is not in harmony with their true nature, it starts to manifest. And as it manifests, it creates havoc in their system. It could even lead to death. Now, ideally, as a hum human population, we don't need all need to die to learn this lesson. I don't know even what that would look like. But as it manifests, things get dark for a while. There's pain. There's, there's secretion. There's fever, aching, all these different possibilities for different forms of chronic illness. That's COVID, that, by the way. That's COVID, by the way. The COVID symptoms. is another, I think when things... No, I'm saying the symptoms that you're describing actually are clinically oh. COVID, right? Okay, but you know, let, let me bring in what I thought you were talking about, and that is that <clears throat> COVID as, as a manifestation, let's say humanity is, is um, a collective which we are, you could say we're a collective of cells in a, in a, tota in a total. Uh, a total. Um, we see people giving away their power. That's uh, one of the big lessons of COVID is don't give away your power. Um, we, each of us is a sovereign individual. We have uh, abilities to know truth within us. We have ability to heal within us. We're, our vital force is incredibly powerful. Our, our immune system is incredibly powerful. We contain the answers that we're looking to others to supply us with, where, where, and they're misleading us. So that's one of the great lessons, I think, that is uh, sort of appended to uh, COVID as, as a lesson for humanity. So right now we're in the part where it's, you know, Illness doesn't have to manifest if you can intuit and get a sense of what the problem is at the deep level and resolve it. But the less that you hear, the, the greater the symptoms become as in an effort to really reveal what the problem is. So we're moving into phase two of this, which is the next part of the plan, right? Like, uh, which has been, I think, has been coordinated 
I don't believe that this is anything real or, or, the, or it's just part of the natural order of things or it is actually um, man-made uh, in, in a lab that's been prepared for this time. Okay, really quickly, I, wanna, I just want to bring up a point that I wasn't able to make earlier, but I want to let you know in this again, and I, I don't want to focus, in my world, I don't focus only on like doom and gloom kind of thing. So some people hear me and talk with me, and some people get really excited because I understand how this stuff works, but some people get very disempowered because they get very scared. For yeah. me, it's very empowering because if you don't know what you're up against, whether you're hunting or whatever, uh, you, you don't know how to help get yourself out of the situation. So for me, that's always empowering, but, but it's not for everybody else. And so uh, I always want to be respectful of that. And that's why I don't have these conversations with everybody because a lot of people can't handle it because of that cognitive dissonance. They want it to be easy. But I want, you, I want you to understand that social engineers, they play chess many decades ahead of the rest of us. And they have far more resources and they know, they know the rules and they know how to break the rules without getting caught. And they know how to hold us accountable in every, in every way, shape or form. That was another point I wanted to make. You said out of darkness comes light. And I think that that's a really, really critical point or one of you said that. Um, and you can't have light without darkness because you know, they are referenced, you know, they're self-referenced with each other, right? And so that's why sometimes I'm open to the spiritual idea that sometimes we have to go dark so that we, we can go more toward the lighter. Sometimes we go too far to light and then dark forces come in, right? However that works. Um, and then I also want to throw out the Rahm Emanuel quote that Dr. Kareem uh, brought up, which is that uh, that's actually an old Kissinger quote and it's been misattributed more, I mean, it's been said by Rahm Emanuel as well, but Rahm Emanuel has very close ties because of his uh, involving, uh, you know, with the Israelis and through Kissinger. Kissinger directs a lot of orders, but um, Rahm Emanuel has that background. So that's, a, that's an old Kissinger phrase, right? That they would use crises, right? And they would never let a crisis go to wait. But Naomi Klein wrote very well, even 15 years ago or so, on how, I think in Shock Doctrine, how they actually manufacture these crises, Right, so they can achieve their broader social, financial, economic, and other technological um, aspects to them. Um, yeah. And then I wanted to say on end times, um, I've been told by people who have really strong connections on the inside that this new system will probably last anywhere from three to five, maybe up to 10 years, and then it'll probably collapse of its own accord. Again, who knows if that's gonna happen? Um, you know, when I look at, when you talk about Maoist or Stalinist or whatever, I think it's important to understand that the same people who gave us American capitalism or North American or Western capitalism are the same people who gave us Maoist China, who gave us Stalinist, you know, Russian Soviet Union, who gave us the Franco, you know, Mussolini and Hitlerian, uh, you know, uh, axis. And they gave us the same FDR in our country. So it's important to understand that as countries, we're just manipulable parts in that, just like companies are, right? For the, so for the, that there's a content. Th this is what I want to ask you before. It sounds like what you're implying, and I, I wanted to ask you your opinion on this. It sounds like there is a continuity of power. So, like, let's say, let's say China becomes the next superpower and basically dictates on a, on a, on a outer level, the, the, the way of things sort of like um, America has been probably for the last, I don't know how many years, but the great, a hundred, a hundred plus, a yeah. hundred plus years. Now, 
it, you know, let's say America is dwindling, could very well cease to be a superpower any day now, and that become an obvious change of, of power. Now, it, it, my question is, is that, is that change of power just orchestrated? Is there a continuity of power behind the scenes? Or so, is the next, you know, alpha lion going to just dethrone the previous lion as the previous lion gets a little old and rickety and loses yeah. its, its virility? You're, you're, presuming, you're presuming kind of a natural order to this. And that's where I think the presumption fails uh, or the, the presupposition for making the argument that you just made in the form of a question uh, fails. Um, the elites have always moved, so this is going to validate your point, they've always moved that center of power to wherever it's most convenient. And that's why if you've noticed it's the, the, the centrality of power for hundreds of years and probably thousands of years has been shifting. It's been shifting a little faster, um, you know, more recently as we become, you know, more and more global. But my, my point is, is that to the assumption that countries, that one country is going to compete with another, that's one of those, um, I think, aspects that's overstated in our society. Um, again, Kissinger and Rockefeller and Bush, these guys all went into China in 1971 to open it up to more globalist influence, right? But the, the means of opening up China goes back several hundred years in Europe. And even 160 years ago, they had the opium wars to try to completely destroy China so they could, you know, just like steal, you know, so many of the resources and get them all drug addicted. Now, the same thing is being alleged now, right? That China's okay, doing the same thing in the United States. But yeah. I understand that even 50, 60 years ago, right? If you read, you know, Carol Quigley, for example, right? We knew that the nation state is no longer the center of power, but all the powers have us believe as though it is, right? It's not. And that's what I'm telling you that from a social engineering perspective, from a governance perspective, we take our orders from the UN, from the World Health Organization, and from the people who control those organizations. And it doesn't mean that this biotech company or that vaccine manufacturer is really controlling it. Those are the actors. Those are the agents. Just like for people that want to say the Zionists control the world, the Zionists, if you will, are the agents, right? Israeli intelligence, which has been modeled off of Russian intelligence because of all the Russian you know, organized crime that they brought in after the fall of the Soviet Union, right? They can achieve a lot of things in the world. And so they're a very powerful asset, just like Britain was when they had, you know, what, 56, I don't even know how many it was, nations in the Commonwealth, right? Of which Canada was one. But my point is this whole idea, nation states are not the folk, they're not the center of power anymore. Um, I'm sorry, uh, sorry, nation states, yeah. The top yeah, one, yeah. even yeah, 20 okay, years ago, really quickly. I just want to state this 20 years ago, right? When I was involved in the historical and geopolitics of this, and I think it was 2001, the, the top, out of the top 100 companies, more than are the top 100 economies in the world, 20 years ago, more than 50% of them were companies, were global, you know, transnational companies. And the, again, they're still at the agent level. They're still at the actor level. They're still taking their orders from their boards and their boards from their bosses. You have to understand the hierarchical aspect of this. It's the same way Kono is trying to tell you guys, right, and in in Canada and in Ontario, how you're going to, or you know, Quebec or wherever, how you're going to practice. 
because they're getting orders, you know, probably that you're funding or, you know, how the, um, yeah, again, how, you know, how the schooling is done, right? When you, when you have yeah. your accreditation, it, that's my point is it's all technocratically organized. So when they start removing these things, like your ability to clinically diagnose and do all these other things, it's absurd. And yet, if that's what power, if that's what the power wants, that's what the power will get. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if that's helpful to kind of explicate the, the information behind what you were asking. Was that? Yeah. I wanted to hear your opinion on, on if there's a continuity of power and, and you, you explained it, you explained it well. I, I thank you for that. Um, I mean, the, the way, the way these hierarchies might work, I have some inkling uh, towards that idea. Now, I'd like to, to bring the topic to the U.S. election right now. Now, and, and this is going to be flavored with, Brian, what you've just shared, okay? Because certainly it looks like there's this infiltration of Chinese influence into the election to sway the election, to put somebody in power who is totally on the payroll, um, basically a, a, uh, a player for the... Con Chinese Communist Party. Now, that would be Joe Biden, just to say it namely. Now, Brian and I, Dr. Krim, you may have watched Brian and I discuss already. Brian thinks that Trump is just another cog in the same wheel of globalist, technocratically run, oligarchical, whatever. I, I maintain that there's a chance that Trump is actually trying to... Um, trying to mitigate or to offset and to resist the globalist infiltration. So when you see like there, there was this, um, there was this show on uh, Fox news that was just aired. Now I, I can understand. I know that Fox news is a kind of a controlled opposition of conservative news, but basically they showed a, a Chinese uh, communist party nationalist speaking to the fact that, Trump has resisted their, their, their plans, their plans to become the hegemony of the world. Now, the next superpower, those, the Communist Party will become the new dictatorial power on, on the planet. So Trump seems to be resisting this economically, militarily, and even social, through the social engineering. So now there are those who, who believe this and must therefore stand up and at least fight for at this level of the battlefield, the idea that Trump stands for the resistance against the infiltration of a totalitarian society or of a Marxist society or like all the different uh, aspects that we see. So Dr. Krim, you, you look like you're, you're ready to jump in here. Let's, let's, let's have it. No, let's okay. have it. I, I want right. to talk about this. This, this, this is the this, next topic. Let's this, go. This actually kind of ties back into what you and Brian were discussing. And I was hoping to kind of get a, a very kind of introductory uh, type of, you know, addressing to toward, towards this issue of, okay, you know, what what is the direction of the flow of history? You know, what's the philosophy of history? And this is where the realm of eschatology, understanding the history of end times becomes relevant. Um from that perspective, if you look at kind of what's, you know, happened kind of globally, you know, first the British Empire, now the US Empire, the the shift becomes, you know, predictable, so to speak. 
And, you know, when we talk about like some of these various, you know, organizations, secret societies, and they're literally kind of spelled out on paper, their plans of how they wanted to see, you know, the globe and these, you know, literally three world wars get fought out. Um, you know, I will say again, you know, coming from, you know, the, you know, Islamic background, you know, from an eschatological standpoint, very similar to, you know, the Hopi, the Christian and the Judaic and other traditions, there is this recognition that kind of during the final hours of history, humanity would be basically facing its biggest challenges. And I believe that every tradition was kind of given their own little pieces of the puzzle, so to speak, to be like, these are the signs to look for. Um, and it, it's, a, it, it's, it's very interesting that, you know, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and his companions, towards the end of his life, he talked about basically these these concerns, these forces, you know, one- sorry, Who was that? Can you repeat the name? The, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon oh, him. Okay, okay, sorry. I'm, yeah, I'm the Prophet Muhammad, as well as companions, were, were very vocal in discussing the, the importance and kind of the, the actual trials that would come about from basically a certain, you know, individual as well as kind of the system of said individual at the end of history, you know, referred to as the Dajjal or the great deceiver, and that there would be many other lesser deceivers leading up to this, you know, kind of penultimate, you know, false messiah, so to speak. At the same time, there is a connection between both, you know, Dajjal as well as, you know, Gog and Magog, you know, which are also mentioned in the Quran in, in two unique verses. And, and that's in a whole other discussion for another time, but just kind of wanted to lay out that there's an understanding that these are, you know, some, there are some underlying players and that basically, you know, the cycling would be faster that, you know, this period, okay, that, you know, prophet referred to as a 40 day period. Now 40 is very significant in numerology, both in, I know in Islamic as well as Judaic, uh, things and not looking at this as an actual you know number but understanding that one day would be like a year one day would be like a week and then you know like a month one day would be like a week and then the rest of the days would be like your days referring to this kind of you know sort of control that would last an extended period of time vis-a-vis -vis, you know the British Empire a smaller unit of time vis-a-vis -vis, you know the last century of the American Empire to a further smaller unit before we really kind of get towards this you know, accelerated sort of end and conclusion. And, and I think when it comes to understanding the continuity of, you know, of government or power, we really have to kind of go back to the world of money. And that's something that, you know, I give props to Brian for having mentioned before, everything from, you know, the Bretton Woods Accord, um, you know, the previous standardization of the US, you know, dollar, you know, to each troy ounce of gold. And then of course, you know, the role that Henry Kissinger played in the creation of the US petrodollar when basically the gold standard was shown to be pretty hollow when, you know, um, you know, basically when France at the time had tried to basically get their reserves of gold from the Federal Reserve and Nixon's like, yeah, not going to happen. Um, and, and so I think that definitely when we look at what's happening globally, both to the U.S. dollar um, and kind of what seems to be the now kind of competing paradigm of the SDR, the um, you know, the, uh, the International Monetary Fund's uh, special drawing rights basket of currencies, which is going to be based predominantly and very heavily in the Chinese yuan. Um, and, you know, already it's interesting when you look at, for example, the, the policies, the political policies of various sanctions, you know, U.S. sanctions on, you know, on, on Russia, on Iran and whatnot. What it's basically created is this platform in which basically 
you know, other players in the globe are saying, we don't want to be dealing with this petrodollar paradigm that requires the uh, basically that any commerce in any sort of, um, you know, oil be done through the U.S. dollar, but that basically we'll use our own exports, imports and trade different currencies or use gold as kind of a standard buffer in, in our trade. And so I, I think that when one looks at the economic situation, in order for you to really kind of create a substantial political revolution, you have to do it on the financial realm first. And this is where that whole aspect of kind of talking about transhumanism, AI, and, you know, digital, um, you know, cryptocurrency that is linked to biometric ID. And, you know, the, the Christian, you know, type of prophecies regarding the mark of the beast that will be needed in order for anyone to, to buy or sell. So I think that, you know, when you see these, you know, these archetypes being reinforced, you know, not only from kind of the traditional religious perspective, but just the kind of the reporting of, and, and that social programming of people to kind of anticipate what's to come. Um, I think that, you know, more the, the way that the occult work is, it's like, we're here, this is what we're doing, but I'm not going to say this is who I am. I'm the head honcho. And here's my address, by the way, it's, that's not how it works. It's kind of like, like an artist who leaves their, you know, signature on their painting. It's us, but it's for you to kind of figure out if we're being serious or not. Mm. And let me, let me add really quickly. I think those are some amazing points um, that Dr. Cream brought up there. Um, I got to study a little bit of eschatology. It was only like an article or two when I did my Judaic study and history degree. And one of my professors was very interested in eschatology. Um, and especially because we had all the Essene, you know, because of all the Essene, um, you know, scrolls and things that were found. Um, and so, uh, or the Dead Sea Scrolls and all that. So um, it was really interesting though. One of the tidbits that my encyclopedic memory remembers was that we talked about how when they looked at four or 500 years of history in so many different cultures, there was this eschatological sense, this fervor that we're at end times generally every 30 to 40 years. And that tends to cycle with what Dr. Cream was just talking about, how our monetary things tend to cycle in that as well. Now, in the hinterlands of the, of the empires, you wouldn't know that that was going on, say, in Rome or in, you know, in Constantinople or wherever, right? But you'd feel it, you know, monetarily. We'd be going into these dark times. Well, we already know that it's a for, it's already, well, you guys may not know this, I know this, that it was a foregone conclusion that all these you know, paper currencies were going to die. Even these digitized national currencies were going to die. That's been in the cards for, again, reading the Trilateral Commission documents, that's been in the cards for 40, 40 plus years now, right? Um, they're now, you know, they're, they're looking at, again, I don't know how they're exactly going to structure at this moment, but they tell us. I shouldn't say I don't know. If I'm on the legal stand, I don't know. I can conceive of several different things that they've told us, but one of those aspects is, is FedCoin, for example right? Where they're going to give us a central bank, you know, account so that even the homeless people can get their benefits, right? Every person, just like you have a social security number, at least in the United States, every, every person should have access, you know, to uh, a banking and not have to go to a bank to do that. So FedCoin, right, becomes the U.S. national digital currency, which is then going to feed in with the, you know, the yuan, right? The central bank digital currencies, um, that's kind of already baked in, in the cards. And we saw that these, you know, again, that the, that the international system was going down. I mean, again, for decades, it's been going down. But we saw it specifically in 2018, 
when we saw the uh, yield, you know, the yield curve start to invert and financial markets, that's a real big problem when the yield you know, curve starts to invert. I don't want to get too into depth into that, right? And what that means in the bonds and credit markets and things like that. But the point being is that that's, that basically is a, is a telltale sign that something's very, very wrong. The stock markets can keep going up, but those bond markets, those credit markets, those are so, so important. And from mid-2018 towards mid-2019, we started seeing you know, countries like Australia and numerous countries throughout you know, European countries um, and Eastern European countries that have their own um, currencies, all of those currencies started to inflate very, very drastically and very, very quickly. And so in, in September 2019, we had um, the repo markets basically freeze up. And what that was, was that all the biggest lenders in the world basically refused to extend each other credit, kind of how like they did with Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns back in 2008. You had a precipitous event, right? And let's just say, you know, the three of us are the bankers of the day. And I say, hey, you know what? Things are so bad, Moshe. Uh, I know I normally, you know, let you know, have a free line of credit open to you, but things are so bad that I'm not sure that your business is going to make it. I hope you are, but I can't get, I can't extend you the, you know, the fifty billion dollars to make up your derivative, you know, that you you made stupid bets with or whatever, right? And so my point is, that the system started coming apart at that moment so badly that they had to start injecting massive. I mean, like hundreds of billions of dollars every single day globally. And again, the estimates are that it's been, you know, after 2008 that they've injected through the Fed and it's now legal in the Fed. I have the, I have the, the language in the law where they actually bumped up the date where they started doing this with the Federal Reserve. But they're basically, the Federal Reserve is the globalist lending institution. And so they're basically pumping out somewhere between 25 and 50 trillion that we can document, right? into the, the global system and that centralizes it. So that's where Dr. Cream's point is so important here is that when they centralize things, we talked about this with the EU in one of our previous chats, um, when they centralize everything, right? They need, um, they need a current, well, actually, if you notice in Europe, they started with a currency. And then when you start with that currency, you then need the laws, the legal aspect, the political aspect, the policy aspect to step in to support that, that, money structure, but that money structure drives it all. And so my point is that we are already going into this globalist, um, you know, global currency and global, you know, type situation. And I, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion, honestly, this is why I don't really get too worked up about it. It's going to be dark. And what they're doing is pretty nefarious. But what they've always done is nefarious. Most people just don't know about it. And so their tactics have gotten more creative and more and they've come up with more distractions because they have to get more, um, I guess, creative and hiding what they're actually going to do and confusing people because we have a more transparent world than we used to decades ago. I'm sorry if I went on too long, please. Okay. Well, well, you know, that, that's very interesting because you, you both kind of, I, I, I think that when, whenever you have a conversation with three people, the conversation can kind of flow in this really interesting way. Um, my original point, and I want to even bring it back here because I think it's the most serious threat that's facing America, your country today. I think Canada is at the already kind of in the bag of what Americans could fight against, still have the potential to fight against. I yeah. see the election that's happening now in America as 
the front lines of a war of ideologies of of a democratic process, a a um, um, the the economy in America, um, you know, being free market. The, we have uh, the the you know free thinking, freedom of speech, the Constitution of America, all these things that America stands for. Certainly not perfectly, but it is a culture that has, in some ways, upheld uh, that for societies. And if we compare with another, a lot of countries, America is a, a pretty good country when it compares to. Uh, other countries in the world that have had a lot less to offer, at least in some ways. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, believe me, I'm not trying to tout America's perfection or the land of the, of milk and honey or anything. In, in any case, this, this election really does represent an incredibly important turning point that if, if Biden does get into power, then it's like Canada right now, unless the people really rise up, it's already happened, right? There's no resistance in Canada. It's like, welcome to Canada. Come on in, take over. There's no resistance in Canada. But Americans are more ideological. They have more sense of, of nationalism and a constitution and the, and the rights of the people. So if they don't, if they're not aware, then they're going to see a, a Marxist totalitarian society taking over America less and less uh, inhibited. Like if it's almost like if you go for your first shot of COVID, well, you've just invited everything else that's to come. Well, if you vote for Biden, if Biden is president, well, then you've just basically invited the rest of the Marxist totalitarian society into your into your living room so that's this is what i want to talk about right now because i from my perspective i find this to be of utmost importance and and there is still a, a battle around this about which way it's going to go i don't think brian i don't think that it's absolutely established that the 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 global elites are omnipotent and have planned this all out and it's just going it's just a matter of dominoes one domino falling into the next that is a very nihilistic perspective that i i have to believe that the people have the power to overturn this tyranny and that's that's kind of the perspective where i'm at so brian let me let me invite you to address that and then uh dr kareem you're you're welcome to as well as, as you see fit so uh, I want to I'm going to end at the beginning, and I'm going to ask you a question for sure. later, which is um, being that you're a safe Canadian, if you if you really articulate the American dream quite beautifully, um, but I still think it's the American dream. I don't think it really functions as the reality that I've seen as a historian and someone involved in international and geopolitics. But uh, you're you're that's not to take away what you think is, is real. You might actually really be onto something. So my question for you would be, if you were an American, right, with all the rights and constitutional things and the way you understand it, um, what, would you, what would you do? So I'm gonna, we're gonna end with that, but I'm starting with the question so you can start to think about it. What would you do, right, if you were an American, when you say fight back, because I'm, I'm in a city that's very Republican, Scottsdale, right? It's a very red place. And I don't see anybody here, and I'm, I'm not a particularly revolutionary kind of guy, um, but I look at all these, you know, uh, you know, people here who are very diehard, like constitutionalist, Republicans, military, 
And I don't see a sense of fervor, but maybe it's just because everybody puts on their mask and they say, because they're afraid to come together because people are afraid of each other. But that being said, I hope you're right that, that there is some reality to Trump, but Trump's always been a showman. And again, we've talked in the past about how, again, I look at the people who ran him and I look at the swamp people that he kept in his government the entire time and why, why I didn't think that. But so I understand that's my, that's my bias and that's my view based on certain facts. But it's really important to understand philosophically, you could have three facts or you could have 10,000 facts. And there's always an infinite number of theories to fit those facts. So I'm not naive enough to believe that what I believe is the reality, right? But I wanna bring your attention to one really interesting point. When you look back at how the Transition Integrity Project, you know, talked about what was likely going to happen, right? When I read about that back in, you know, August, September, whatever, read their documents that were from, you know, August and September, right? One thing that was very clear to me is that by the time we kept getting closer and closer to the election, it looked like a script, the same way Event 201 looked like a script for coronavirus, right? And so I know that they put these types of things out there because they have this supposedly this um, aspect of revelation of the method, right? That they inform people what they're about to do. And that gives the smarter people the ability to consent or not to consent. Okay? Right. I'm not sure how, again, there's no transparency. There's an opaqueness to what the highest levels of power are doing. So I don't pretend to know what they do because they don't call me up and say, hey, Brian, we're going to do this. What do you think? I wish they did. I mean, I'd be happy to let them know what I think. I'm a pretty open guy like that. But um, so if any of those guys are listening, I'm happy to talk with you. Right. But my point is, is that I hope you're right about Trump. I just don't see it. And I don't see it because of who runs him. And, you know, when I see who, you know, uh, with Giuliani, who is, you know, corrupt and as crooked as can be, um, you know, his right hand man, you know, I look at all of that, all of that corruption, and I don't see behind it, beneath it, with, again, my training, I don't see that level of hope. Now, let me, let me say where you might be right in my mind, right, with my biases, you might be writing that they may have picked him just so that he could be himself, which is utterly relatable as a hero in some ways and utterly despicable, right? Because you're like, oh man, what a buffoon. Like, I can't believe he's saying this. I can't believe he's doing this. And so he may not be, I know he was put in place for a particular reason. I don't know what that reason is. I look at the people around him and I infer what I think are those reasons. And I think because Soros is involved and Soros is always involved in color revolutions, I suspect it was to swing it you know, to the right so that then they could swing it back. But when I read the, integ you know, the Transition Integrity Project documents, almost everything has happened exactly as they had scripted it, right? Which means that, and again, in politics, things, we, we know those of us who had you know spent time in Washington knows that very few things happen um, you know unintentionally. There aren't a lot of accidents, right? Things are very very well planned because, like I said, they're highly coordinated. They have a lot of resources, and you know I knew people that have been telling me for years, "This is it. On this date, we're going to have everything go to you know hell in a handbasket." Blah blah blah. I've been hearing this for years. Not a None of my colleagues, none of my friends, even the ones that I highly respect, none of them said, hey, actually one of them did. One person did a year and a half ago, two years ago, but they said it without any authority behind it. Like, oh, I think this is gonna happen. 
It, they yeah. said it like, oh, maybe the the Wuhan, like not Wuhan, the a, a Chinese, you know, a, a Chinese pandemic is going to come on us or something like that. One yeah. person basically mentioned that. But my point is that nobody saw this coming, right? And and you would think that they that they would if they did that. But when they plan their stuff, like the Manhattan Project, right, with the nuclear, you know, nuclear weapons, they plan it so quietly that nobody knows it's coming, and then all of a sudden it's on them. The smarter ones of us, and Hitler noticed this, by the way, in his, and I'm sure this is a time-tested thing, but they know that they can only fool 70, 80, 90% of the people. And they know that the other 10%, they're probably not going to be fooled, but five to seven of those 10%, or I should say 50 to 70% of those last 10% or five to 7% of the people are just going to go along to get along because they're in debt, because they're scared of what other people are going to say to them or what other people are going to look at them right? Or other yeah. people are going to cause problems for them or start a fight or shoot them or whatever they're scared of, right? And they have reasons to be scared of that. I think they're legitimate reasons. But my, 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 I think my broader point is that um, people still need to ha- like stand up and, 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 and do what they think is right. Um, but I don't know that, again, this is getting back to the question I asked you at the beginning. I don't know that if all these, you know, you know Republican, again, I want to be clear, I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat. I really don't have any political affiliation because I don't see any system that really seems to work. They all are, they all are threatened by the folly of human self-interest and human um, incompetence and human uh, corruption. And so that's a problem for me. That's why I don't okay. even like professions, but that, that, that would kind of be my answer. Let me see if there's anything else I wanted to say. Uh, I also want to say that I don't think that there are really free markets here and there haven't been for a long time. We have a very, we have very socialist policies on both sides of the aisle. Um, and, and, you know, again, it's just corporate welfare, so much of it. But anyway, those are, those are the points become, that I wanted to make. That's become more and more obvious. That's become more and more true that the, you know, and the merging of, of the big corporation with the government is, is, is happening as, as well. But but one thing that I noticed, and honestly, Brian, if this is if this is all part of the game, then it's it's a stinking brilliant game, more brilliant than I ever could imagine. So I, I have all, I have always maintained the possibility that Trump is very much just playing a role. And you know, there I, I shared that meme last time that we were talking with Al, I was think it's Al Pacino saying, you think that there's this global power that controls everything and they just let some guy slip into the presidency of America. So obviously not. But what I noticed as soon as Trump was in power, the mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, they all turned against him. They all started immediately the uh, attacking him and alleging, you know, Russian Russian collusion and all this all this crap. I think that the truth has to rest somewhere that there has to be some truth. And and even though Trump is a, he is a kind of a buffoon, you know, he's not presidential. He's, he, he's terrible for the environment. He has a whole bunch of flaws that are awful. Uh, But what he does stand for, he is standing against the Chinese. That's, that says something. He is well, against that could be, takeover. That could be because there are some, and again, let me be clear, nationalist elements. Remember, his power base is in New York. 
he he thrives better in a in a in a nationalist framework from his business standpoint. He's got stuff all over the globe. So it's, I don't mean to suggest that his business is only here or mostly here. His businesses are all over the globe. But he it may be better for his businesses. And again, I don't really I haven't followed this stuff, so I'm not an expert in this. But it may be much better for his businesses to be tied up with Russia. And again, I know the Russian collusion thing was um, has been pretty much you know debunked at this point. But my point is that it does seem like there was there was more respect toward Russia during his term than there was respect towards China, right? And I already know again from going back to the Clinton you know administration and the Obama administration how much cooperation there was between the U.S. and China. But I want you to understand that goes back to Kissinger. That goes back to Kissinger and Rockefeller, and now the the new Kissingers and Rockefellers, right? Um, yeah. you know, the Gates and 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 Buffets and whatever, right? The, the the big players that are moving the pieces, right? And the people above them that are moving that money. But my point is, is that just know that China was picked to be the, this continuity of power, but not so that China could defeat the U.S. That's where they keep us played off of one another, so that we have problems with Chinese people. Again, the way they do in Israel with between, you know, no, but Muslim, okay, we have to make that between point. Muslims, but, Jews or Israelis and Arabs when those people can live in harmony all the time and do. But that's not even, you know what, I don't even think that it, they're trying to make it degrade against Americans, against the Chinese people. And this is the party. But we, we should speak to that point. This is not the Chinese people, the, the one point whatever billion people of China or the Chinese Americans or Chinese Europeans. This is about the, the communist, the, the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP. Karim, I'd like you to I'd like you to chime in about this, and then I think we might wrap it up a little bit soon. We're getting towards two hours. I think I think I feel like we're, we could be in like twenty five percent of our, our our. We're just getting warmed up here, you know, like with all the all the information, all the different th uh, rocks that we could turn over and discussing this. But I just like to hear if you could stay on this topic that we're talking about specifically, the election, the 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 threat of an like a very severe threat to the liberties of the American people. And I know that there have been all kinds of loss of freedoms through the years, but there have been some some maintenance of the freedom of speech, for instance. Like that's being threatened. That hasn't been threatened until this past year or so that's new so there are new elements that we're seeing that the the you know the, the totalitarian takeover threat is upping its ante so i want you to i'd like to i literally want to hear what you think about trump as as a candidate re uh, you know another four years for trump or biden coming in what does that represent to you what do you think this means um i think it's it's definitely kind of you know, complex in in its own right. Um, I think that Donald Trump is definitely an, an interesting character. Um, I also, you know, do believe just kind of studying history, looking at political candidates, that they're never really going to give credence to any candidate that's really going to be anti-systemic, unless they feel that that is going to be beneficial towards their ends. And I think with Trump, you can have elements of someone who is chosen because he's going to be a great polarizer that the end game isn't so much about Trump or his ability to drain the swamp or whatnot, but to basically be on the attack nonstop in a way unprecedented such that we polarize another half of the country who's like, okay, something, something here is off balance. If this, if this attack is so unrelenting, 
perhaps there's something about him that makes him unique. And, and I will give credit to some things that he has done and, and some areas he's focused on where I feel like, unfortunately, the, the conventional discourse has been very dismissive, um, you know, on this issue of child trafficking and how this is actually a very critical issue in terms of, you know, international geopolitics, um, you know, blackmail, espionage, amongst other things, getting into some darker areas that, again, would kind of continue along with, you know, eschatology discussions in the future. Um, but I, I do believe that, you know, looking at that narrative, that we've been kind of set up for a lot of these things. Even if we look at Hollywood, I feel like Hollywood is a good predictor, if you would, of kind of where they're trying to get that psychology, you know, working towards. And the collusion yeah. between the CIA and Hollywood goes back decades. This is sure. well understood, you know, you have military brass meeting with producers um, and directors to help kind of, again, you know, make these movies. Amongst them has been that theme of, again, some global pandemic and that we're gonna have to wait for the CDC until the vaccine, like there's been at least a dozen or so type, you know, movies, you know, in that genre over the last decade or so. Uh, similarly, when it comes to kind of the aspect of, okay, the Chinese Communist Party, you know, or, or any Communist Party, it, it's a very re good reusable meme, okay? It's like, but it depends on which flavor, you know, during the Trump administration, oh, it's, it's the Russian former KGB and commies that have basically stolen the election from us. Um, until basically, you know, in overnight, Joe Biden goes from being, you know, behind to being in the lead. And then all of a sudden, election fraud is not possible in America. So, yeah, so, so I think it's, it's, it's the way that they polarize. And I think that, again, you know, when you have kind of a, a financial situation that you need to kind of be able to not have the blame be on, okay, we're going after, you know, JP Morgan, Stanley, you know, Goldman Sachs, all these guys or the people above them. Instead, it's like, well, this is what happens when you have a pandemic plus a civil war. So I don't know if it's going to get to that extent, but I think that that narrative has been created. And I think that that's where, in terms of like what our actions are going to be, it kind of depends. If you look at, you know, what you know, we had a lot of promises of draining the swamp from Trump. And I think there were some people he removed, but for the most part, he's surrounded by establishment. With Biden, it's like a who's who of like trashy establishment that he's basically selecting for his cabinet, with the exception being we have the right amount of kind of identity politics of like, hey, first this, first that, rather than like, instead of the, you know, how many, you know, X chromosomes they have, or how much melanin they have in their skin, what was their policy, you know, while they were actually, you know, in power the last few decades. So I think that using these divisive ways of getting people polarized, you know, the fact of the matter is from a, from a globalist perspective, if you can get people to do the kind of thinning out for you, it's more cost effective for you. You know, it's, there's a lot of efficiency built into kind of the mindset of, you know, of any kind of level of, of, of systemic control, you, you have to have that kind of efficiency. So I, I think that, that that's where it's going to be a kind of watershed moment. I think that, you know, what's going to happen, it, I think we kind of have to sort of see where it goes. We can, we can generally maybe predict like, you know, will there be some outrage, you know, should, you know, Biden be in, you know, claiming, you know, uh, Oval Office come January? I think you would definitely have some, you know, conflict in the streets, or if it happens the other way around, we could probably expect some to what yeah. extent, to what point that's going to be like, Hey, we now need to declare martial law because of this. Hey, we now need to implement this act. That's been already, 
you know, written like months or years in advance, you know, I think we can all try to make educated guesses, but I do think that sometimes uh, you just kind of have to wait and see what we actually do and then how they're going to respond. We can probably try to predict thereafter. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I, I, I agree with a lot of what you said. One, one thing I don't necessarily fully agree about is this idea that, you know, Trump, Trump was brought in to be this polarizer. You know, not that I don't agree with that. I think that that's possible, but that it's mainstream media, the way they've spun a lot of what Trump has done and said that has polarized you know, the whole racist thing. Like if you look at what he actually said around, around that, that event, he never, he never said there's good people on both sides, meaning the, the white supremacists are, are good. That was totally taken out of the context, you know? So in, in terms of polarizing, I don't necessarily mean just because they know he's going to say absurd things, even though, again, he, he is a showman, you know, and he's, he's always been known as such. Uh, but I do think that, again, because of much of the identity politics we already kind of discussed and how people kind of binarily see things, you know, fr from their own perspectives, I think even if Trump wasn't saying or doing all those things, they, they already have kind of presented him as like, this is the buffoon that represents the deplorables, the people on the right, the people who are not quote unquote woke or whatever it may be. And again, these right. are the terms that well, don't really old, have much meaning. The you know, old but, white ma capitalistic male that he represents. If you look at the actual election, you know, the gains that Trump actually had in amongst minority voters, amongst African American voters as a lame duck president was definitely something uniquely you know, unprecedented. Um, and so, um, again, I think that this is where there, you know, th this kind of sort of looking down that, you know, it's like if you identify with, and again, I don't identify with either side. I've, I've had my, my fair share of kind of politics over the years, but, you know, at, at least being able to, um, to kind of, you know, recognize, you know, where those, those concerns and grievances actually are, um, and again, having a unified kind of political front, even on Trump's side, you see people who are already kind of abandoning him in droves, you know. Um, and, and so I think that, again, the, you know, the, the whole making order out of chaos, I think, is always a good end game because it's like if you have everyone pointing all their fingers at everyone, you know, but themselves and, you know, those that are kind of pulling the strings, you know, it's just, it's a nice kind of free for all where you can kind of step back and just kind of gently kind of go things to kind of move in the direction that you'd like. But again, I do think that, you know, Trump probably as an individual human may have had his own kind of goals and beliefs as to what he could actually accomplish as a president. But I think there's certain realities that set in once you actually step into that office to realize the executive branch and that the president of the United States himself only has so much power in the entire scheme of things. And right. fundamentally, that fourth branch of government, you know, the actual media, if you lose in that kind of, in the jury of the media, regardless of what the legal facts may be on the ground, you've got an uphill battle. And that's kind of the reality of how most issues are decided in this day and age. You get the trial by media, and even regardless of court precedents or what the evidence may be, the jury's already out, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, well said. I, I think you bring a lot of great points. Brian, of course, always brings a, a lot of great points. I think that we can surmise what, what's going to happen. 
we can pray what we wish will happen. We can definitely stay united in, in, you know, the most important things, humanity, people, human contact, love, acceptance, equality, the things that will always be important that hold universal a promise and, and truth and love. And so that's, that's what I'm, when I'm uh, holding the space, as I'm, I'm sure you are, and I'm, I know Brian is too. Um, and I, I think it's great that we can, we can get together. We could, we could talk about things, agree about some things, disagree about others. We're just had a, having a good discussion. I don't know where Brian went. I, I, Brian, are you here just to say goodbye to us? And um, I'm uh, here. Can you, can you hear me at all or no? Yeah, I can hear you. I just see uh, uh, your very handsome photo on, in the, uh, by the ocean. Oh yeah, that was in Santa Barbara. Um, yeah, my my data ran out, and uh, two hour call was wiped out my data. The rest oh, of my data, so. But oh, I heard okay. all of I heard all of Dr. Cream's points, and again, I I agree with 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 uh, the overwhelming majority of the sentiments and the statements, and, um, and and again, I I've I've suspected just to finish that up on the on the election, I've suspected that they're going to pull some constitutional aspect that's going to involve Pence maybe the Senate, maybe the 12th Amendment, maybe one of the executive orders. Um, and, but I, I think that the goal is to stack various um, um, crises together, like we've already seen it, right? You know, whether it's hooligans running around cities or whether it's people protesting or whether it's virus or pandemic or the response to that pandemic, they're very good at stacking those types of crises when they need them and they're to their benefit. Um, so yeah. I expect that to continue, and I expect the uh, the election will result in probably something similar. Um, again, I've I've always understood for the last 25 years that the goal is to wipe out the Constitution and to bring America to heal. And again, yeah. through history, the globalists usually get what they want when they want to bring an empire down. So they made this empire; they can bring it down anytime they want to they own it, they've created it. And so they're telling us it's, the ne it's time for the next evolution, right? And it's gonna be a global, right? A highly centralized global. Of course, don't, don't forget, it's all gonna be local too, right? They're gonna make you feel like everything's local. Your local government is choosing this, your local business, right? But my point is, is it's gonna become much more global in that regard. That's I, I see what you're saying. Let me, let me jump in here and just say this and, and maybe we could wrap it up. I'll, I wouldn't mind hearing uh, Dr. Krim one last minute uh, oversight or like message of, of peace and hope or whatever you want and same with you, Brian. But um, I actually think that because the globalists have been operating for so long, and I may be very naive to say this, but I think that there are a lot of people waking up to it and humanity doesn't want to get kicked around like, like the globalist plaything and determined and dictated to. And I think that this may represent a time where we can take a stand. And that's what I'm hoping is the case so that we're not just moving into the next chapter that they've decided for us, which is gonna be a much worse chapter than the last one, by the way. So that's my, that's my uh, closing statement. We gotta stay, I think it's time for humanity to rise up. A lot of people are looking at their sovereign rights you know, there's talk of Magna Carta and um, uh, what do you call it? Article 61 in Magna Carta and people claiming their rights. I, I don't necessarily fully embrace that. I'm just learning about these different possibilities. 
just God bless us all. And I really hope that we are not moving into the next chapter of the globalist agenda as it's all been charted out on their chessboards. So Dr. Dr. Karim, Karim, would you, uh, would you like to just a one minute or kind of wrap up of, of what you'd like last minute thoughts kind of thing? Last minute, kind of quick wrap. All right. Um, you know, with, with, with everything that's happening, you know, again, you know, there, there's a verse in the Quran, you know, um, they plan and God plans and God's the best of planners. And fundamentally, regardless of, you know, the globalist kind of like, okay, this is our plan and we've been planning it for X number of years, which is what we're trying to achieve. Fundamentally, at the end of the day, it's, it's not going to work in the long term. And so as things are just like we talk about the disease process, you know, sometimes it's like getting through that peak fever, you know, your immune system is doing the work it needs to do for you to get better, that the actual, the disease in and of itself is the cure. And I think that ultimately that is where we're going to head. But fundamentally, we all have things that we can do, you know, um, as individuals, and I think as a collective, as a community. And I think that, you know, the, the natural instinct of humans to form tribes is something that's always going to be there. And us, you know, of the same mindsets, you know, also need to function cohesively as our own tribes, you know, moving forward into the future and, you know, embracing strategies that are self-empowering, that decentralize us from <clears throat> dependent on, you know, a system that once those kinks, you know, do occur, inevitably, you're now kind of, you know, um, out in the cold, so to speak. And so I think that, again, that, that's one of the beautiful things, both of our medicine and just kind of, you know, looking at nature around us and work with the principles of nature, we can help fortify ourselves, you know, as individuals, as communities, when it comes to our own means of, you know, production and economy, anything, even on a small scale, gives you that extra little bit of, you know, leg up versus, you know, not doing anything at all. And just having trust that, again, you know, after ultimately, you know, these, you know, stormy times that it will be trying and that we're going to have to definitely be very kind of cautious and, you know, dig deep in kind of looking at everything, you know, around us and really kind of trusting, you know, what, you know, the, you know, the eye of our heart is actually, you know, telling us and is making out from the world around us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Kareem. Love it. Love it. Bri, a, a quick synopsis. Uh, you know, I don't think I have much of a synopsis. I, I always just keep telling everybody I'm going to make my popcorn and uh, kind of watch this movie play out. Um, I, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can, right? Um, you know, that's within my humanity to do. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, you know, I, I agree that this is probably going to get darker before it gets more light. And again, I expect it to take a good five or 10 years, but um, I also hope that they, maybe they've, uh, again, made it seem much worse than it's really going to be, just to kind of scare people and keep them terrified so they'll keep giving up their power. They're really good at doing that. So yeah. um, I, I just try to keep my focus. And uh, honestly, I have to admit, I don't, on a day-to-day, -day, I don't focus on most of this stuff. I focus on, you know, helping, you know, the patients and clients that I work with and, and going in, in those things. So that's kind of how I help tune all this kind of out. And I, you know, I read like maybe an article two or two here, maybe in a day or something, but that's probably it's more like three or four articles in a week relating to this. And so I don't consider myself an expert in still what is actually going to happen. I just have very interesting thoughts and sentiments. And so we'll see. Right. Um, yeah. All right. I, well, again, I, I have, I have faith in humanity 
that if they really get down to what what's at stake, like what you know what's at stake in all of this, that they can do the right thing. And so I just welcome everybody to do that. The problem is that it, it, it it's really hard for people to figure that out in these times. Right. When we said that, you know, in one of our first talks that during a cover up color revolution, it's impossible to know which side is 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 telling you the truth. And that's when Dr. Cream echoed that point about 10, 15 minutes ago. Right. So that, you know, you, you don't know, like if you're on the right, you think the left is conducting a coup. And if you're on the left, you think the right's conducting a coup. And, right. and ironically, it might be people above them who are doing the coup and they're just pitting both sides against each other in a nice theatrical way. Right. Anyway, but right. thank you for holding the space for us. I really appreciate it. And you still owe us an answer on what you think what we should do here in the United States. <laughs> well, let me let, let me let that be. Um, I think that, gosh, it's hard. So because there's such a strong division, but I think that the people do need to stand uh, and at all costs refuse to degrade into war and killing each other over these ideologies because a lot of them have been socially engineered and manipulated into people. So refuse to degrade into civil war, but insist on having discussions and, you know, really, really have these open discussions. And for, you know, ultimately in simplest terms, people have to get together in a way and hold hands and march and and resist like there was this there's this quote that i have on endies for truth in the gallery and it goes something like you, you know how the uh the pandemic stopped in russia I, I forget exactly what it says but basically people refused to show up for the for the vaccines that's how the, that's how it stopped so people, the, the power lies in the people. That's a truth. That's, a, that's an, an internal truth. Governments are meant to serve people, not people following the dictates of government. That's a complete reversal of reality. So people have to wake up and say, we won't take this. We won't listen to this. And there's hope in that. So I think that the American people and the Canadian people, everybody around the world, British people, name it, have to stop. Uh, conforming to the dictates of, of government because government is just getting really bloated and extremely dictatorial. It's ridiculous. So I think, I think we all have to remember and discover who we are. And that's a very spiritual thing. That's a very, very spiritual thing. We are children of the divine in all our different uh, uh, shapes and colors uh, and, and, you know, different uh, manifestations. So that's the most important place that we have to remember and, and wake up to. And when we do, then we become these channelers. We become embodiers of the divine. And each of us is guided to know what to do and where to go and what to say. So that's, that's that. Thank, thank you both so much. Uh, great discussions. A lot of amazing material that we went through and um, uh, peace be with you. Salam Aleikum, Dr. Kareem. Shalom. <laughs> Shalom. Shalom Aleikum, uh, Brian. And take care, Jen. Salam, yeah. Yeah.